In those days, in those far remote days, in those nights, in those faraway nights, in those years, in those far remote years, Shurupak, the wise one who knew how to speak with elaborate words, lived in the land. Shurupak, the son of Ubaratutu, gave instructions to his son, Ziudsura. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest, Lily. And we're reading The Instructions of Shurupak, which is among the earliest known world literature. It appears at the site of Abu Salabik during the Farah period, or the 2500s BCE. We're reading a later version of the same text. So this text is a set of instructions from a father to his son. The father is the eponymous King Shurupak, who is presumably the legendary namesake of the city of Shurupak. And he's talking to his son, Zi-Ud-Sura, who is the Sumerian Noah figure, familiar from the Epic of Gilgamesh. So in the Sumerian king list, the city of Shurupak is the fifth and last dynasty before the flood. There's only one king in this dynasty, and his name is Ubaratutu. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Noah figure is named Utnapishtim, and his father is Ubaratutu of Shurupak. And the first version of the Sumerian king list appears about a thousand years before the Gilgamesh epic was finalized. Unlike later versions, the version at Abu Salabik from the Farah period does not name the sun, so it might not have been connected with a flood myth yet at this point. So this text is a collection of Sumerian proverbs. So these things were apparently first written down during the Farah period. So we have a version from the city of Shurupak that includes a section that's absent from the Abu Salabik version, and vice versa, the Abu Salabik text has a section that the Shurupak one doesn't. So this text is the oldest known example of wisdom literature, which will be common throughout Mesopotamia and Egypt, and will show up in the Bible as the Book of Proverbs. In the text, the Proverbs are arranged more or less randomly. Here, I've arranged them thematically. In general, they address social expectations of urban life, mostly from an upper-class perspective. Obviously, these would be scribes from good families who are getting this training to advance their social situation. So the Proverbs are largely about how to protect your reputation and your household wealth, and they often show disdain for the masses. You should not place your house next to a public square. There is always a crowd there. You should not vouch for someone. That man will have a hold on you. And you yourself, you should not let somebody vouch for you. That man will despise you. You should not loiter about where there is a quarrel. You should not let the quarrel make you a witness. You should not let yourself become involved in a quarrel. You should not provide a stranger with food. The beginning of that one makes sense. Like, don't get into trouble. But Mm. the last one is, (laughs) I feel like the last one goes counter to so much of what you hear just from like every other culture that like values hospitality. Yeah, no, that's... That also really struck me about these, because, I mean, you know, these are coming from the quote-unquote beginning of history, pretty much. We don't have any literature from earlier than this point, and already the kind of values we assume would exist in every human society is, you know, be nice to the hungry, be nice to the poor, you know, don't be too much of a dick. I think the explanation is that just, you know, these are sayings that circulate among elite men. Yeah. You know, they're not necessarily writing down the most common proverbs in all society. They're writing down the ones that are most relevant to their life. Right. They're writing down the ones where they think, this is how things should be. (laughs) Exactly. And they're the ones with all the bread. Yeah. Kind of anachronistically, we can call these bourgeois values. You know, they focus on their interest as an individual and this kind of idea that you can distinguish yourself from the masses via personal behavior. Not only that you don't owe anything to the poor, but also the kind of idea of you should not get involved with other people's issues at all. Yeah, that's a little wild. Like, yeah. again, you would assume that these things would be very, like, community-oriented. And I guess life maybe was, but that's not how these guys were writing things down. Right, exactly. You know, like you said, probably life itself was much more community-oriented And there would be lots of other areas of life that, you know, would have more pro-social sayings, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. So one of the most common themes we see is to watch your mouth, essentially, to not speak unwisely. You should not tell lies. You should not boast. Then your words will be trusted. You should not speak improperly. Later, it will lay a trap for you. 
You should not curse strongly, it rebounds on you. You should not boast in beer halls like a deceitful man, then your words will be trusted. You should not pass judgment when you drink beer. I mean, that just seems like good advice. <laughs> right. Just don't trust anything you think when you're drunk. <laughs> I don't know. Some of these are normal, but... Right. When it is about someone else's bread, it is easy to say, I will give it to you. But the time of actual giving can be as far away as the sky. If you go after the man who said, I will give it to you, he will say, I cannot give it to you. The bread has just been finished up. That one seems, again, like, just don't promise things that you can't provide or... Right. The artistic mouth recites words. The harsh mouth brings litigation documents. The sweet mouth gathers sweet herbs. The garrulous one fills his bread bag. The haughty one brings an empty bag and can fill his empty mouth only with boasting. The imprudent decrees fates. The shameless one piles up things in another's lap. I am such that I deserve admiration. The liar, shouting, tears up his garments. To speak arrogantly is like an abscess, an herb that makes the stomach sick. My words of prayer bring abundance. Prayer is cool water that cools the heart. Only insults and stupid speaking receive the attention of the land. That one, the last line, very true still today. There are certain <laughs> right. people, certain people I will not name that can say the stupidest thing ever and it will be on TV and everyone will watch. Yeah. And I mean, there's, again, there's like the, the aspect of just like good advice, which is like, the less you say, you know, the lower chance you have of saying something stupid. That I feel is in a lot of ancient wisdom. Like yeah. <laughs> fools talk a lot, but nobody knows you're a fool if you keep your mouth shut. Right. In Sumerian art, like when people are banqueting, their mouths are never open. And even when there's a scene of musicians playing for the banquet and there's like a singer, the singer has their hands over their chest to indicate they're singing, but their mouth is never open. So I've read huh. a thing that says that the only times we see open mouths are animals in Sumerian art. So I've read a thing that That's... says like, it's, I don't know, ghost to be seen with your mouth open. And I wonder if, you know, all of the emphasis on don't say, you know, don't speak unwisely, what that has to do with that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. That's wild. You know, they have the, I, I'm familiar with like the, do the big eyes and statues and things to like indicate like prayer or like uh, devotion, but the, the mouths are always shut. Right. That's weird. We have some proverbs about not stealing. These tend to emphasize property ownership and the new role that material wealth plays in social relationships. You should not steal anything. You should not break into a house. You should not wish for the money chest. A thief is a lion, but after he has been caught, he will be a slave. My son, you should not commit robbery. You should not eat stolen food with a thief. You should not sink your hand into blood. After you have apportioned the bones, you will be made to restore the ox. You will be made to restore the sheep. What does that last one mean? Because that sounds wild. <laughs> right. No, I, th I think it's literally just like if you steal an ox and you get caught for it, you're going to have to pay back an ox to the person you stole it from. Oh, okay. So if you've already eaten it, you're going to have to find yourself an ox. Yeah, okay. It's not framed as a thing that is like intrinsically morally wrong. It's when you are caught, your life will be a whole lot harder. That's, I feel like a lot of things, like some of the ones that well, we'll get to in a minute are also like that. It's like, right. oh, it's not that it's bad. It's that people will hear about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, the, the fact that, you know, living in a city brings lots of people together and could potentially bring, you know, people a lot of property in the same city as thieves. Yeah. One might even say that there's a dialectical relationship between wealth and property and property crime. One might say you can't have one without the other. And yeah, obviously people in the city would spend a lot of time thinking about this. So it's interesting that, you know, this line, like a thief is a lion, but after he's been caught, he will be a slave is again, kind of a, almost kind of like a retributive fantasy for either the rich guy who's had something stolen or the rich guy who imagines that his nice things may be stolen is, yeah. you know, he has this fantastical image of a thief that has ultimate power over him because he hasn't been caught yet. And then once he has been caught, he is, you know, he's been uh, debased as much as humanly possible. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on there. 
Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, you know, speaking of bourgeois values. Without suburbs, a city has no center either. Yeah. I mean, you need suburbs, you need consumers, you need people to do work for you. So hmm. we have some proverbs about the importance of hard work. You should not work using only your eyes. You will not multiply your possessions using only your mouth. The negligent one ruins his family. At harvest time, at the most priceless time, collect like a slave girl, eat like a queen. My son, to collect like a slave girl, to eat like a queen, that is how it should be. We have some about the importance of accumulating wealth. Property is something to be expanded, but nothing can equal my little ones. The fool loses something. When sleeping, the fool loses something. Do not tie me up, he pleads. Let me live, he pleads. Heaven is far, earth is most precious. But it is with heaven that you multiply your goods, and all foreign lands breathe under it. The property is something to be expanded. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yep. I was going to say, I do think it's interesting that, like, it's put next to, but nothing can equal my little ones. Right. Like, it's it's interesting that those are weighted against each other. It almost speaks to kind of like a guilty conscience on the part of one, right? It's like, the greatest good in life is expanding one's property. Like, think for a second. Oh, yeah, and also my kids. My kids are pretty important. After that. Yeah, really. I don't know about this line, though. It is with heaven that you multiply your goods. So I don't know whether it's, like, it is with heaven's blessing that you multiply your earthly goods or that it's intrinsically an act of, you know, an act of piety to multiply your property. So, I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. That second, that second one is interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, that one just, that one's interesting to me because like, if, if like the purpose of property is to be expanded and like, if the world was created by the gods for like people, then maybe like it's an act of devotion to increase how much of it you own. I don't know. <laughs> well, again, yeah, well, it, might, it might be uh, you know Siberian prosperity gospel. We also have some proverbs about how poor people are lazy and untrustworthy. If you hire a worker, he will share the bread bag with you. He eats with you from the same bag and finishes up the bag with you. Then he will quit working with you, and saying, I have to live on something. He will serve at the palace. The poor man inflicts all kinds of illnesses on the rich man. The married man is well equipped. The unmarried makes his bed in a haystack. Oh, the poor man inflicts all kinds of illnesses on the rich man. Oh, how sad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you should not buy a house-born slave. He is a herb that makes the stomach sick. You should not buy a free man. He will always lean against the wall. You should not buy a palace slave girl. She will always be the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, and then the other Sumerian proverbs, just a kind of idea of, you know, houseborn slaves are too comfortable and they'll be too lazy. Well, and there's also the an herb that makes the stomach sick is like the same phrase that was used a little bit ago. These people were just eating whatever, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so what kind of slave should you get? You should rather bring down a foreign slave from the mountains, or you should bring somebody from a place where he is an alien. My son, then he will pour water for you where the sun rises, and he will walk before you. He does not belong to any family, so he does not want to go to his family. He does not belong to any city, so he does not want to go to his city. He will not be presumptuous with you. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like, it's pra I guess it's, it's practical. If you want somebody to be completely dependent on you, don't have them know anybody else in town. Yeah, earlier we were looking at the kind of like bourgeois values of the wealthy, educated, you know, well-connected man in the city. You know, at that level, increasing atomization is how you keep all your stuff and avoid obligations to other people. But the other side of yeah. this atomization is, you know, how do you get someone who has no connections to the outside world whatsoever? And yeah, and like you said, it's, it's pragmatic advice for, you know, how to completely break someone's spirit. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting that presumably some of the foreign slaves they had would not be from cities, but presumably all of them would have been from a family at some point. Yeah. 
So it's not clear here whether the proverb means like someone who has been permanently separated from their family or someone that they don't consider to have ever been part of a family worth respecting in the first place. I mean, it could also be like prisoner of war situation where you slaughtered the rest of the family. Ooh, yeah, there you go. Don't have anything to go back to. Right. Relatedly, on the theme of barbarians from the mountains. On the unfamiliar way at the edge of the mountains, the gods of the mountains are man-eaters. They do not build houses there as men do. They do not build cities there as men do. The need for food makes some people ascend the mountains. It also brings traders and foreigners. Since the need for food brings down other people from the mountains. A lot of cultures have like the, those people that live on the fringes are definitely cannibals right, idea. Right. No, it's interesting because I was I was reading about basically trying to identify individual cultures, like foreign cultures named in the texts with like archaeological cultures elsewhere in Asia, basically. I can't remember which one, but it was one of the ones that are probably somewhere in Eastern Iran, Shamashki and uh, Marhashi and like, the, you know, those guys. Basically, they were reading this text from about 2000 BC or so. The Sumerians writing about these other people are like, you know, they don't have grain, they don't have cities, they don't have temples, they don't have this kind of priest or this kind of priest or this kind of priest. And I was reading this article that was like, well, the Oxus civilization has, you know, buildings and, you know, whatever it is. It's like, we don't, can't be that. Like, well, they probably aren't being totally honest about this culture that's a thousand miles away. Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't have direct contact with it anyway. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same as like the ancient Greeks and Romans trying to describe animals they've never seen before and <laughs> exactly. just saying like, anything <laughs> and all this dog-faced men in india <laughs> yeah you just say whatever furthers your own point right. or whatever is most sensationalized no one's going to go there and, and verify it so you may as well yeah but i like this the, the line you know the need for food makes some people ascend the mountains and it brings other people from the mountains you know there are always people basically opting out of the farming process and going into the hills with their sheep and essentially becoming mm -hmm. mobile herders and you know just like it says the opposite happens where you have equally bad conditions in the hills and mobile herders, you know, either want to integrate into agricultural society or just want to raid it. And I mean, like fear, like for somebody in a city to like despise people in like the mountainous regions, that like makes sense. And that happens in a lot of places in the world because, you know, you'll find like pockets of resistance to institutionalized authority right. in mountainous regions because they're harder to access. Well, that's the other thing is that like fundamentally the state cannot extend its control into the mountains. Right. The state requires a more or less sedentary group of people. Each person is attached to a particular plot of land. You have a certain amount of labor and a certain amount of agricultural surplus that you could expect to collect from them. And if they are, you know, migrating seasonally or if they're, you know, in the mountains and you can't see them or reach them, they're out of your control. Yeah. And if they're out of your control, they're bad. <laughs> exactly. So we'll hear more wisdom from Shurpak. But first, so we've made it from the Archaic period into the Phara period. So today we're going to talk about the site of Phara, better known by its Sumerian name of Shurupak. So Shurupak is about halfway between Unuk and Nippur essentially in the core of the urban heartland of Sumer. It was the legendary home of Utnapishtim, the Noah figure in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, the guy who put animals on a big boat to survive the flood. In the Epic, Utnapishtim was the last king of Shurupak before the flood. The site is currently a long way from both major rivers, but in the early dynastic, it would have sat at the intersection of a western branch from Kish and an eastern branch flowing from Jemdat Nasser through Abu Salabik and Nippur. We're going to look at Abu Salabik in two episodes. So Shurupak was a major administrative and military center around 2600 BCE, or in the early 2500s. We're going to look at the possibility that it may have been the administrative capital of the Sumerian City League, including, besides Shurupak, Unug, Lagash, Nippur, Adab, and Uma. This collection of six cities has been called the Hexapolis of Shurupak. Then we're going to finish with more proverbs from Shurupak to see how he feels about women. So Shurupak appears to have been founded during the Jemdat Nasser period, around 3000 BCE, the earliest seal impressions are from an earlier and less ornate style than what we see later on. Shurupak flourished in the Archaic period. It reached a height of 70 hectares, 
but because it was excavated in 1902, lots of it is poorly understood. So we have a sprawling building from this earlier period, including beads made to imitate shell cores. We also see 321 identifiable cylinder seal impressions from archaic Shurupak, spanning from the Jemdat Nasser to around 2600. So 88% of these seals were used to seal storeroom doors. Essentially, near where the door closes, there's a peg sticking out of the wall. And instead of a doorknob, the door has a rope. So when you close the door, you wrap the rope around the peg, and then you cover that peg wrapped with rope with clay to seal it. So again, the door won't open until you unwrap the rope from the peg, and you can't unwrap the rope from the peg unless you break the seal. So judging from the interior of the seals, there are apparently two types of peg. One is smooth and featureless, like stone or polished wood, and the other has markings of vegetable matter, either reeds or palm fronds. We also get 9% of ceilings from containers, mostly pots and leather bags. Some of the rest are impressions on blank clay tablets, maybe to test out the seals. So these over 300 seal impressions come from 70 unique seals, all of which are cylinder seals. There are no stamp seals. We actually have found stamp seals at Shurupak, just no impressions from them. Even if we're talking about a long period of time here, 70 different officials, each with their own cylinder seals, is a lot of officials for one institution. So we're probably dealing with a fairly big state, even in this early period. The vast majority of these seals depict a Master of the Beasts motif. They also depict things like deities, banquets, and miscellaneous animals. One of them depicts a man wearing a cap with two long ears. He might be a kind of masked magician. And another man with a flat cap and a short skirt tucked into a girdle with a long trailing mantle. This might be the King of Kish. We see a similar linear style on seals from the Diala Valley, which you'll get last episode. So 27 cylinder seals left more than one impression. One seal is found on 87 seal impressions. This is a conflict between lions and anthropomorphic gazelles holding pickaxes. A similar design appears on 60 other ceilings. Whoever used this seal clearly had an important role in supervising large-scale storage that is not the sealing of small containers. So probably this person was in charge of grain stored in bulk. And the seal is almost always applied to clay on smooth pegs, maybe the same peg over and over. The string preserved in impressions is from goat hair. All of the fibers are Z-spun, with no fibers spun in the S-direction. In general, boating scenes are common. They probably depict a statue of a god in a ceremonial procession, or, you know, a real living god on a boat in the scene that the statue of the god in a ceremonial procession is meant to imitate. Another seal appears on nine ceilings. To the left, we see a human with long hair fighting two lions. In the middle, we see an official holding a whip or some kind of staff. And to the right, we see a banquet scene on a boat with two diners and one servant. Fish swim under the boat and birds fly overhead. We also see gazelles and scorpions in this picture. So this appears on five seal impressions on doors with Z-spun string. We also see three container ceilings, a reed matting bundle, a wooden box, and a leather bag. Now let's introduce the fire period. So we're talking about Shurupak during the early dynastic 3A period. Generally, when I talk about the Faro period, I'll be talking about the 2500s BCE. So during this period, Shurupak expanded to the west. So the city is now 100 hectares, one of the biggest cities in Sumer. So like I said, Faro is the modern Arabic name for the site of Shurupak. So the Faro period is a stage in the development of writing, mostly represented by texts from Shurupak, which we're looking at today, and Abu Salabik, which we'll look at in two episodes. We have other individual tablets from the same period at Ur, Unug, Nippur, and Kish, but no other major collections of texts, like we see at these two sites. So at Shurupak, we have a thousand cuneiform tablets, about 600 of which have been published. They span the 2000s BCE, but they're mostly clustered around the 2500s BCE. As usual, the vast majority of these are administrative texts. We also have some lexical texts, and arguably the first literary texts. They probably represent a relatively short period of time, maybe one or two decades. As we saw at Ur, these words are written phonetically in both Sumerian and Akkadian, so essentially we are continuing the trend, transitioning between a pure logographic system, like we saw during the Uruk period, where one sign corresponds to one idea or one word, and moving towards a mixed logographic and phonographic system, 
where some signs represent ideas or words, and some signs represent sounds. So you can now spell out proper names or words in a different language. The sign order doesn't seem to reflect spoken Sumerian yet. However, signs for numbers and object designations do follow a strict order, so they can be legible in a list. But ideograms for people and administrative offices appear in different orders. So in other words, just like every company today has a specific way that it compiles their data so that it can be easily analyzed. Their numerical records all follow the same format, even if their qualitative information is not as neatly sorted. Some texts are cumulative summaries of records and other texts, so this is evidence of a kind of second-level auditing, so that people don't have to look at many, many records of small transactions, but instead a few records summing up those many transactions. We have some possible gaps in this information. For example, the text mentioned donkeys much more than cattle. Of course, archaeologically, we know that any Sumerian city would have had a lot of cattle in it, but for some reason, cows are less likely to show up in these texts. We also see colophons, which are personal names included at the end of texts, probably the person who quote-unquote authenticated the tablet. So this is a level of institutional accountability for preserving the accuracy of the scribal tradition, whether they're lexical lists or literary texts. You can verify that this text was written by a trusted scribe, and if there's a mistake in it, you can compare it against earlier versions of the text and see if that particular person messed it up. And these colophons are usually separated from the content of the tablet by a straight line. So often what we'll see is, you know, for example, Sangha A copied this tablet. Sometimes below it, it'll say Sangha B finished this tablet. Sangha being a word for either a scribe or an official. These colophons appear in literary and lexical texts, but not in school exercises. So they're only for official documents, not for practicing how to write. In 1985, Ago Westenholz said that the back of some lexical lists are, quote, embellished with intricate designs or beautiful drawings, end quote, including on otherwise blank tablets. The origins of this kind of artistic representation might date back to the Uruk period. Also during this period, we see god lists. Most of these gods do not correspond to the more familiar Sumerian gods that we know, but these god lists do include Gilgamesh, which proves that he was being worshipped as a god by the 2500s at the latest, not long after the historical Gilgamesh might have lived. Also in these god lists, we see two gods, Lugal Arata and Lugal Elam. So the second god's name would be King of Elam, Elam being the kind of region of southwestern Iran, just east of Susiana. The name Elam is written with the cuneiform sign Nim, which later on definitely refers to Elam, but it appears as early as the Jemda Anasa period, and it's not clear if it always refers to Elam. However, we're pretty sure that it does in this case, because the other god that I mentioned is Lugal Arata, which would be King of Arata, the same kind of legendary region in Iran that we remember from the Enmerkar myths. This may show that Arata was a real place, or was considered to be a real place at a certain point in time. So during this period, the Farah period, we see a kind of standardization and the first appearance of later standard Sumerian literature. So the way that these scribes are curating, standardizing, and adapting the lexical tradition that they're inheriting from the Uruk period and archaic Ur, in many ways, these Farah texts are the first quote-unquote standard Sumerian texts. But these scribes also preserve some non-standard traditions, maybe local traditions used alongside these new pan-Sumerian standards. They might be based on other languages or dialects. So Ud-Gal-Nun is the modern name for a separate type of orthography, or a way of writing words. So in standard Sumerian, the name of Enlil is usually written with the signs Dingir Enlil, that is the word for God, the word for Lord, and the word for wind. So he is the God who is the Lord of the wind. But in some Farah texts, his name is sometimes written with the signs Ud, Gal, and Nun. This always shows up in literary texts, sometimes switching between the two spellings within the text, or sometimes even within the word. So sometimes they'll write the signs Ud, Gal, Lil, using the first two signs from the Ud, Gal, Nun spelling and the last sign from the Dingir and Lil spelling. In 2013, John Taylor wrote, quote, The substitutions are based on similarities in form, sound, or meaning, as far as can be discerned. It has been argued that Ud, Gal, Nun is to be explained as a scribal code, or that it is the survival of an alternate use of writing, end quote. So, to quote one of these Ud, Gal, Nun texts, The great noble god of Nippur took a seat on the pure dais. The wife 
Ninlil took a seat in the cella. Enlil libated superb beer. He libated superb wine. So we have some other old-fashioned spellings. For example, the name of the Abzu is sometimes spelled with the signs Zu Ab, so the signs for to know, and the signs for the sea. So given that Enki is the god of wisdom and the god of the fresh groundwater, they may be referring to the fresh groundwater with a kind of pun that means the sea of knowledge. Likewise, the name of the moon god, Su-En, is spelled with the signs Zu-En, meaning wisdom and lord, pretty self-explanatory. And sometimes they'll put the sign Gal, meaning great, at the beginning of the word instead of the end. So instead of writing the word Lugal, meaning king, you know, great man, they'll write Gal-Lu. Early on, the sign order seems to be basically arbitrary, but over time it starts to reflect the word order in spoken Sumerian. Non-standard spellings probably reflect earlier ideographic writing when the signs corresponded only to concepts, not sounds. It's also possible, though, that we might be looking at different languages or dialects. Certain cuneiform signs might be used to represent a different language, even if those signs also have Sumerian readings. So again, this is fairly early in Sumerian history, and we're at the literal beginning of the literary tradition. So we can't prove that there aren't other language groups living in Sumer, or at least that the scribes in Shurpak aren't influenced by the traditions of other language groups. I should point out that standard Sumerian as we know it appears to have evolved out of the local dialect of Unug and Ur, kind of the far south of Sumer. We have evidence of a different dialect at Lagash, which we'll look at soon, and it's very likely that there were other regional dialects of Sumerian, or maybe even other languages, that didn't make it into the kind of standard scribal Sumerian. So looking at lexical texts, like I said, these fire texts continued the lexical tradition that started in the late Uruk period and continued through Ur and Kish. They inherited some of these lexical lists from other scribes, like the list of professions, which originated in the Uruk Lu-2-A list, also, lists of domestic animals, ceramic pots, and types of fish. So they're learning and rewriting these old Uruk texts, but some of them are unintelligible, because we are, by this point, about 600 years removed from the first texts. Their meanings are obsolete. Maybe they were used to represent a different language, but these texts were still used to train new scribes. In other words, students would learn how to be scribes by copying the same set of outdated texts alongside other more up-to-date texts. So like I said, some of these have a colophon at the end that has the word Sangha, a personal name, and then Dub Musar, which is Sumerian for scribe X, copy the tablet. These lexical texts have been vital for translating Sumerian because they're nouns grouped by category. To quote Aga Vestenholz again, quote, there was a remarkably stable lexical tradition throughout the third millennium, extending from the Jemnat Nasser period to the end of the third dynasty of Ur, with occasional survivals into Old Babylonian, end quote. In other words, the standardizations undertaken by the scribes at Shurpak around 2600 BCE will persist in Mesopotamia for another thousand years. In addition to teaching people how to write certain words, lexical lists also allow scribes to standardize the way words are written. You know, because you're learning how to write these words by rote, you know, literally copying them down over and over, you, know, you can choose from among the several different ways that you could communicate a concept in cuneiform, you know, either combining ideas or combining sounds. You know, this is the time when whatever way they chose to represent a word, that's when that word got standardized. One of these lexical texts is the tribute list. This is a unique lexical text originating in the Jemdet Nasser period. It has 94 lines, and its meaning is unclear both to modern scholars and to far-era scribes. The structure is made up of two introductory lines of ideographs. Then we see lots of entries organized into categories, including numbers and animals, animal products, and other commodities. And each section is introduced by ideographs. In 1998, Robert England said that the repetitive structure indicates that it's a literary text. As we've seen, Sumerian literature is extremely repetitive. He calls this, quote, the earliest work of written literature on earth, end quote. This text will be part of the lexical tradition until the end of the Old Babylonian period, again around 1600 BCE. But, as early as the Far period, scribes in Shurpak did not understand it. They're the ones who first interpreted it as a tribute list. So, in other words, they're studying obsolete language. Even though the point of scribal school is to prepare them for real life, they're spending their time copying obsolete texts unrelated to their careers, and relying on secondary interpretations to even understand the content of the thing they're writing down. 
Another lexical list is the names and professions list. This is from the Kish tradition, which we'll talk about next episode. It also shows up at Ebla and Abu Salabik. In most cases, it's a series of lines in the format X person held Y office. But the list from Shurpak is unique. We have some sequences of job titles with no corresponding personal names. Also, some names repeat, like Alam Ag and Ama Ushum Gal. The second name means the Lord is a great dragon. It's the name of the patron god of Uma and one of the names for Dumuzi. 37 of the names in the names professions list also show up in administrative records from Shurupak. That's 23% of the personal names in the Shurupak version of this lexical text. One of the people is named Egal, so there's a guy named Palace. Another guy is named Lulu, the same name as the two guys named Lulu from Archaic Ur. Another name that shows up in both is Anu May, a copper merchant who we'll mention in just a bit. So cuneiform was invented during the late Uruk period in stages between about 3300 and 3100 BCE. For the first 500 years of its history, it was a record-keeping system, not a representation of language. The word scribe is absent from Uruk period texts because it wasn't originally a separate profession just for writing. That is, writing was an elaboration of pre-existing administrative practices. So the first people to use writing had already used administrative tools like seals and numerical tablets, not to mention tokens and things like that. So unlike later periods, people who wrote the earliest tablets didn't write their names. The sign combination, dub sangha, appears in Jemdat Nasser texts around 3000 BCE. Dub means tablet or scribe, and sangha means temple official, including scribes. So the sign combination dub sangha might have meant scribe during the Jemdat Nasser period. That's possible, but not certain. Like I said, during the early dynastic period, Uruk lexical lists were copied alongside newer lists. These Uruk lists are obsolete, but probably prestigious, whereas in newer lists, the vocabulary corresponds to contemporary texts. That is, these newer lists reflect the language of their time, not the archaic language of the Uruk texts. For example, we have a new version of the Uruk Lutu A list, the list of professions, now called the Lutu E list. Now, the words are in early dynastic Sumerian, and these professions include new titles like Umbisang and Dubsar, both of which are words for scribe. The phrase Dubsar might appear first in archaic Unug. By the fire period, Dubsar is a well-attested status. There are various types, including the scribe of the city ruler, which is probably a prestigious position. Some attestations are so specific that they might refer to individual transactions. These texts might just characterize people by a specific job they did once, instead of listing them by a permanent job title. So it might be more of an invoice than a pay stub, per se. We also see evidence of hierarchy among scribes. So the Dubsar Mah is the senior scribe. The Ugula Dubsar is the overseer of scribes. And the Dubsar Gal, or the Great Dubsar, is the chief scribe. And we see evidence of career progression. So some people start as Dubsar Gana, or scribe of the fields. Some of these people work their way up to the rank of Sa Du, or land registrar, or Ummiya, which is a master or land surveyor. Later on in history, we will see the scribe Lugal Ushum Gal become the king of Lagash. We also see the sign Sangha. This is the same sign used during the Jemdat Nasser. It's not clear if it represented the same word. In Sumerian, the sign Sangha was read as Umbisang, or scribe. It's not clear what the difference is between Dubsar and Umbisang. It's possible that Umbisang refers to a higher rank. By the fire period, both Shurpak and Abu Salabik had at least 100 scribes each. So given that the population was in the low 10,000s, scribes would have made up a significant portion of the population. Over time, the word Umbisang will become obsolete, and the process of becoming a scribe, or Dubsar, will become increasingly formal and institutional. It's not clear how education works during the fire period, but by around 2000 BCE, it'll look a lot like school as we know it, or more accurately, school as we knew it around 1900. A lot more rote memorization and a lot more corporal punishment. So next episode, we'll talk more about the Kish civilization. Essentially, this is the scribal culture of the north, centered on the kingdom of Kish. It's a literate culture, familiar with both Sumerian and Akkadian traditions. You know, Kish probably controlled parts of Sumer. It may have controlled Shurapak, maybe. We'll look at that. But either way, it was constantly trading and interacting with the rest of Sumer, so it shouldn't surprise us to see Semitic names in Shurupak sources. They make up about 3% of the names at Shurupak. 
This is around the same time Pu'abi of Ur was buried, probably a little earlier. Pu'abi is a Semitic name, but she was one of the noble women buried in the royal tombs of Ur a little after 2500 BCE. Even if you don't recognize her name, you've probably seen the treasure. She was buried with a huge amount of gold and jewelry, and also a bunch of human sacrificial victims. We don't see any Semitic names in texts from archaic Ur, so that may be because it's too far south, and because most Semitic speakers live farther north, or it may be because it's earlier in time, and there was a long-term migration of Semitic speakers southward throughout the 2000s. Could be either. Anyway, at Shurpak, some scribes have Semitic names, including Ur, Elum, Ishlulil, Adalum, Ikugi, Isarpu, and Inail. So Il, or Elum, is the Semitic word for God. It also shows up in Hebrew as El, or Elohim. So we have a guy named Inail, which appears to be the same name as Enail, a king of Kish, who claimed to have defeated some Elamites. We'll look at that next episode. So one of those guys is named Ur Elum. This is written with the determinative for God. In other words, the name Elum is preceded by a little asterisk, essentially, which denotes that the name that follows is the name of a god. So in cuneiform, it kind of works like the capital G in the English word god. And it's assigned to read the name Elum as the name of a god and not as some other word. So Ur Elum means servant of Elum. This is a familiar formula for Sumerian names. You also see it in the form of Ur Zababa, the king of Kish. Obviously, Zababa is the patron god of Kish, and Ur Zababa, in legend, is the king of Kish deposed and replaced by Sargon of Akkad. So we don't have much direct evidence of trade as we know it, either within the so-called city league or with outside entities. That is, we have no evidence of private ventures for monetary profit. So instead, we see salaried agents of the palace. They make regular trips back and forth from trading partners and trade the surplus produced by their institutions for foreign goods, like metals, minerals, and timber, and so on. At first glance, the palace looks like any modern corporation, but instead of monetary capital, the point of all this wealth is to exercise social capital in the moment which includes both importing precious goods from elsewhere based on pre-existing connections, but it also means leveraging the huge amount of labor it controls into products to trade for exotic foreign goods, as well as products to redistribute to its own workers and clients. So these trade agents are called Damgar. We see land grants in these texts for people titled Damgar, and they have a boss titled Gal Damgar, or Great Damgar. In a lot of older texts, you'll see the word Damgar translated as merchant, but they're not really merchants because they didn't operate in their own right, and they didn't operate for profit. It's better to understand them as the acquisition department of a temple or palace. That is, their job is securing the flow of resources to the institution that pays them. Either way, we see four or five Gal Damgar at Shurpak, who oversaw about 42 Damgar. Two names are associated with both offices, Anume, who I mentioned earlier, and Diutu. But these are both common names at Shurpak, so these might be two regular Damgar who eventually got promoted, or they might just be two guys with the same names as their bosses. Anume, among other things, brought back copper. One text mentions that he brought back 40 minas of copper. It's about 40 pounds. About half of this was given to two individuals, and the rest was divided among five more people. Another Dungar acquired 109 minas of copper at the price of two-thirds of a shekel of silver per mina. So, essentially, he paid about one pound of silver for about 120 pounds of copper. So, in return for their work, these Dungar got land and donkeys to pull plows. Essentially, the palace rewarded them and kept them loyal with their own land. Just like the temple at Ur, we see a class of landed nobility centered on a major institution. In this case, it's apparently a palace that is a household of a particular elite family. We also see a job title called Dam Kas, which might have been some kind of emissary for a long-distance trade. The word Kas means messenger, so this may be a similar kind of thing that we saw in the Enmerkar myths, where he sends his messenger to demand resources from a foreign power. In one text, a Dam Kas receives bundles of reed, along with managers and sailors of cargo boats. So this may be the Dam Kas being provisioned by the city for long-distance sea trade. As with other positions, this role seems to have been filled by people from outside Shurpak. One Damkas comes from Adab, and another one comes from the town of Ahuti, 
It's not clear where Ahuti is, but it's probably a ways up the Euphrates on the way to Mari. Their primary mode of travel would have been rivers and canals. Like I said, Shurupak is at the intersection of two major branches of the river system at this point. And in these texts, we see lots of payments for different types of boatmen, including the Lu Magalgal, or bargemen, and the Lu Madubsag, or lead boatmen, the Lu Masagi, or boatman of the cupbearer, and Lu Magur, or a sailor on a cargo boat. This might be evidence of institutionalized transportation infrastructure. So canal maintenance is not just for agriculture. You also want to maintain waterways so that trade can get through. So it would be in the governing institution's interest to get a bunch of guys to maintain the canal because Shurpak couldn't be an administrative center for the river trade if the canal sold it up. In one text, we see a Lu Ma Irikas paid in barley from Unug, Uma, and Adab. In other words, the grain may have been raised from the city league and then paid to this guy at Shurpak. Lu Ma Irikas is Sumerian for boatmen of messengers to the city, and Irikas is a higher rung of conscript than the lowest rung of manual labor. We see a place called Madga, sometimes written Maga or Madaga. This was a town in contact with Shurpak, at least 400 kilometers up the Euphrates, maybe the same place as the modern site of Heat, which is a major source of bitumen. If so, this bitumen would have been part of the provisioning process for building boats. We see a job title called Ga'esh, a kind of long-distance trade emissary that is associated with Madga. We also see references to a place called Delmun, which is probably Dilmun, or the Sumerian name for Bahrain. So Shurupak, even though it's a fair ways from the coast, is probably involved in sea trade with the Gulf, maybe via Ur, which was closer to the coast. So in the archaic Ur episode, I mentioned a text with an unclear meaning, mentioning several people, some oxen, a donkey, and some copper objects, mentioned in conjunction with Tepnel land. This may be early evidence of trading copper for land, that is, buying land with money. So an iku is a unit of measuring land area. One iku is about one-third of a hectare, or a bit less than an acre, and they generally sell for two to three minas of copper, about two to three pounds. But land often sold for much more, as many as 40 minas per iku. So clearly, there are other forces at work. So barley is still the fundamental unit of economic value. In some records, even when barley is not being exchanged or even counted, we'll see the value of certain objects or property or whatever calculated in amounts of barley, not in amounts of copper. So just like today, the value of an object might be calculated in dollars, even if the owner of that object doesn't plan to sell it at any point in the future, but it still has a value that can be expressed in amounts of dollars, just like value at this point can be expressed in amounts of barley. Some fire texts stipulate an exchange rate. So one mina of copper is usually equal to about two to three ban, or about 15 liters of barley. At Shurupak, both copper and silver are materials of exchange, and the value of both land and houses is calculated in amounts of copper. A small number of properties are calculated in silver, and even fewer are calculated in barley. So what we see at Shurupak is people are increasingly relying on precious metals as ways to calculate value and moving away from only barley. One list at Shurupak is a list of rations distributed across a wide area. We see 10 types of product distributed. One is a tug gula, or a type of blanket or shawl, and the rest are different types of food. The most common commodity in this list is barley, followed by coarse and fine barley grits, beer and sweet or dark beer, barley to make beer, barley to feed to donkeys, sourdough, and flour. This text mentions two Elamites, described as Lu'u, Elamite, and Amar Sun, fisherman of Elam. It also mentions other distant locations, like Kish, Sippar, which is near Kish, a little up the Euphrates, and Arawa in Elam. So it seems that government business took place in several buildings. We have several immense grain silos, presumably for storage on behalf of the city league. But based on seals and the names that show up in records, they all appear to be controlled by a central institution, that is the Egal, or the palace, the ultimate source of rations. It's possible that society was still partially organized along kinship lines. So when we see government business handled in multiple houses, it may mean that those are the ruling families of Shurupak, or they may be different branches of the same royal family. One guy named Anzud Sud shows up in tablets and also has his name inscribed on cylinder seals. 
He appears to have no official rank or title, but he did conduct a fair amount of private business that is in his own right as an individual. We see a huge building with many rooms that may be the palace. Texts mention as many as 6,580 workers from all five of the other members of the quote-unquote City League, as well as Kish, but not Ur, which seems important. Notable that neither Kish nor Ur are members of the quote-unquote Hexapolis of Shurapak. We also see a tablet house. This is a specialized, large institution with 1,200 workers and 9,660 donkeys. We also see a building with two courtyards that administered 100 hectares of farmland and a different building, maybe a scribal school, where we see lots of lexical and literary texts. So earlier we looked at seals from the Archaic period. Let's look at seals from the Fire period at Schuerbach. So we have one building with 125 identifiable seal impressions. Most of these are found in its courtyard, in the same context as a bunch of tablets from the Fire period. These ceilings show a huge range of styles. Like before, most are from door pegs, about three quarters of them, and 20% are from containers. The rest are test rollings, that is, trying out your cylinder seal just to make sure it works right. So we see a more diverse range of administrative activities compared to the Archaic period. In this level, we see 20 unique seal impressions. So we're probably looking at 20 different individuals in the bureaucracy, but the tablets don't make any reference to an institution like a temple. We have a banquet scene. This one is poorly preserved. It might be an indication of elite status. Depicting an elite banquet on your personal marker identity might show that you're the kind of person who gets invited to those dinners. One seal has an open eye symbol in a geometric design. We have four copies of this one. The most common seal with 47 impressions depicts a naked man subduing a gazelle while two lions kill two wild animals and a different man subdues two bulls. This art is called the Anzud Sud style after that guy I mentioned who has his name inscribed on one. Another Anzud Sud style seal has 36 impressions. In this one, a man subdues two beasts, a beast subdues two lions helped by a humanoid figure. On the bottom, a man helps a cow give birth. We also see a smiling cow and a bull. This is the most common style. It's found on door ceilings, as well as containers like a reed bundle, a pot, or a wooden box. The string impressions come from a distinctive coarse twine. So I've mentioned a city league on and off since the Jemdat Nasser period, and I mentioned the possibility that Shurapak may be the administrative center of an independent Sumerian city league, or it may have been the local administrative center of the Kingdom of Kish. I mentioned that the tablets at Shurapak group six cities together, Unug, Adab, Nippur, Lagash, Uma, and Shurapak. Among other cities, Kish appears more often than Ur does. And of course, these were the two major powers of the Archaic period. Other cities to show up include Sippar, which is north of Kish, and Kesh with an E, which we haven't found yet, but which is probably in the northern part of Sumer. So often we will see distributions of barley rations to a worker conscripted from one of these cities, paid by the administration at Shurapak, in conjunction with another of the five cities. So we're not always clear exactly what this means, but it might say, you know, these many rations of barley paid to a worker from Adab, and next to that transaction it'll say the city of Unug or whatever. So that kind of thing may indicate that Unug is providing the grain to pay to a worker from Adab, but that all of that is happening either in Shurapak or is coordinated by Shurapak. So this is a kind of institutional, systematic exchange between different cities and citizens. These cities also appear in lexical lists from Ebla and Abu Salabik, that is, lexical lists that are part of the Kish tradition, which may indicate that Shurapak is just the Sumerian capital of the kingdom of Kish. So this city league seems to have collaborated mostly on labor projects, some people might have been digging canals to connect major cities, which no individual city would want to dig themselves if no one made them. Since we're talking about big labor projects that benefit everyone, but that would be too expensive for any one city to carry out by itself. Also, workers might have been drafted to fight in wars and or do manual agricultural labor. We see some evidence of workers conscripted for sheep breeding. In terms of religion, the text mentioned the gods of Nippur, Shurpak, Unug, Lagash, Uma, and Adab, so respectively Enlil, Ninlil, Inanna, Ningirsu of Lagash, and Ama Ushumgal Ana, or Dumuzi, of Uma. Like I said, scholars disagree on whether this was part of Kish's kingdom. One text says, quote, Menunsi, king of Kish, 
allotted 15 boor of land to Ayakigal, end quote. This king of Kish doesn't show up in any other records, but if a text in Shurpak is recording the allotment by a king of Kish, it may mean that Shurpak is part of the kingdom of Kish. It's also possible that this text records an older land grant. So this king of Kish might have given this guy this land a hundred years prior, and now his great-great-grandson is in court, and this text just records the finding of the court. It also might be territory acquired from the kingdom of Kish. Way back when, Manunsi gave this land to Ayakigal, but now the Sumerian City League has conquered it, and they're just trying to figure out who owned this land before they took it. So Kish does appear in records, like I said, but it doesn't appear as often as the other five cities. It was definitely closely involved in trade with Shurpak, but other than that one land grant I just mentioned, we have no proof that Kish actually ruled Shurpak. A lot of other scholars assume that the Sumerian City League was set up to oppose Kish, essentially that no one city would be strong enough against it on its own, but that six major cities in the south could counter the one big kingdom in the north. Both theories have their adherents, and I'm not really qualified to choose between them. But we're to finish with the look at corvée labor. So we see the term dubsig, which was a kind of obligation to perform corvée labor, or payment in kind instead. So it corresponds to the later Akkadian term ilkum, which was the basis of land tenure for the entire second millennium BC. So in city seals that we see between about 3100 and 2700 BCE, the city league is taking collective responsibility for the goods being delivered. In that case, each city is responsible for organizing production ahead of time. So it needs to come up with a consistent and institutional way to ensure it gets done. So essentially, they need to come up with a standard way to make a bunch of people do that work. So I already mentioned that some accounts of barley rations in Shurpak texts are paid by the administration at Shurpak to a worker from another city, and that transaction is characterized by the mention of a different city. The Sumerian term for this kind of distribution is ba. It's written with the pictogram for a turtle, because the Sumerian word ba can mean either turtle or distribution. We see two texts from Shurpak that are contingents of either workers or soldiers. Both are called gurush. Technically, Nurush, but I can't pronounce that. They're conscripted from their hometowns and stationed in a place called Ki and Gi, which, as we've seen, might refer to Sumer generally. It might refer to Shurpak as the kind of center of the Ki and Gi League, or it might just refer to being stationed somewhere within the realm that isn't Shurpak specifically. So I mentioned that in addition to war, people could be conscripted to manual labor projects, both men and women, including construction, canal maintenance, and maybe making textiles. I also mentioned another type of conscripted worker called Irikas. These were seasonally employed and housed in Shurpak. They were subject to Nimgir officials, who were themselves subject to a Gal Nimgir. And these Irikas workers were paid more than regular manual laborers, and about the same as non-supervising artisans. So they may have been doing more specialized labor. So Shurpak was destroyed by fire at the end of the early dynastic 3a period, so sometime in the 2500s BCE. This brought an end to the Fara period. Shurpak was sparsely inhabited afterwards, and it would finally be abandoned around 2000 BCE. So when we see Shurpak being mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they're not mentioning a city that many people lived in at the time. They're mentioning a city that had been depopulated for almost a thousand years at that point. And since it's so prominent in the Sumerian king list as the last kingship before the flood, and because the flood story was so tightly tied to that last legendary king of Shurpak, so by the time it's mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Shurpak is almost a mythical city lost to time. Just as scribes in Farah era Shurpak already couldn't read Uruk texts, their lives would be equally alien to the scribe who wrote down the Epic of Gilgamesh. So it may be that Shurpak was burned by Ur, Ur, like I said, was not part of the City League. In fact, it seems to have escaped the conflict enveloping Sumer at the time. If anything, it seems to have grown stronger while every other major city was weakened. And this is also the time of the Royal Cemetery of Ur, when we see impossibly lavish tombs filled with all kinds of treasure and dozens of human sacrificial victims. So, Shurpak was destroyed around the same time as Palace A and Kish, which we'll look at next time, maybe as part of the same war. So, if Shurpak was part of the Kingdom of Kish, and if Ur fought a war against them, Ur may have destroyed Shurpak to weaken the Kingdom of Kish. Who knows? So returning to the instructions of Shurpak, so we have Proverbs essentially saying no sexual misconduct. 
You should not play around with a married young woman. The slander could be serious. My son, you should not sit alone in a chamber with a married woman. My son, you should not use violence. You should not commit rape on someone's daughter. The courtyard will hear of it. You should not have sex with your slave girl. She will chew you up. You should not buy a prostitute. She is a mouth that bites. You should not abduct a wife. You should not make her cry. Again, it's like the idea that, like, don't do something because the neighbors will hear, not because it's bad. Right. You know, obviously, you know, to modern society is like, you know, the number one rule here is the moral rule of rape is bad. But that's the fourth thing in this list after, you know, don't be seen alone with married women for the same reason, which is, you know, a negative effect on reputation. Well, I feel like if you're just basing it on reputation, like if you're not like considering the morals of it, you would piss off more people by messing around with a married woman because then it's like her family and all of that stuff too. And her husband's family, there's more people involved. Well, and especially the way it phrases, you know, don't commit rape on someone's daughter. Yeah. Thinking of everything in extremely patriarchal terms and essentially that, you know, that would be a harm done to that father. Likewise, we, you know, today we would say sex between a slave owner and a slave is categorically rape. Here it doesn't say don't do it because it's morally wrong. It doesn't even say don't do it because people will look down on you for having sex with their slaves. But it does say uh, don't have sex with a slave girl. She will chew you up. Don't buy a prostitute. She has a mouth that bites. And I don't know. Yeah, like the reason not to do it is because those women will become difficult. Right. Not because it's bad or anything. Right. We have Proverbs advising against making enemies. You should not drive away a powerful man. You should not destroy the outer wall. You should not drive away a young man. You should not make him turn against the city. You should not drive away a debtor. He will be hostile towards you. The eyes of the slanderer always move around as shiftily as a spindle. You should never remain in his presence. His intentions should not be allowed to have an effect on you. You should not establish a home with an arrogant man. He will make your life like that of a slave girl. You will not be able to travel through any human dwelling without being shouted at. There you go. There you go. You know, in the context of, you know, people excusing historical figures owning slaves by saying, oh, it's different. Society was different back then. I can't remember who it was, but basically the argument was, no, they knew it was evil. You know, that's why they were obsessed with it never happening to them. And, you know, whether it's, you know, rhetorically or, you know, constructing an entire edifice of, you know, race to, to make sure that never happens to them. All of them are extremely aware that slavery is a great evil thing. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the biggest the biggest fear of ever any slaveholder ever anywhere in the world is, well, what if what I'm doing happens to me? <laughs> exactly. The wealthy, well-connected scribe in a Sumerian city, you know, the worst thing he can imagine happening to him is his life becoming like that of a slave girl, which he probably owns. You know, he probably owns some slave girls, so. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why he's aware of how miserable her life is. Right. Because he's the one making it miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, no one, or at least like none of the texts we have, really questioned the idea of this rigid social hierarchy. Also, people talking about like Spartacus and other slave rebellions. You know, before the Haitian Revolution, none of them were ever trying to abolish the institution of slavery. They're just like, we personally should stop being slaves. I mean, I feel like different institutions of slavery also function at different levels in society where people view them as like, this could be separated from society and this couldn't. Right. I don't know. I just, I feel like, because like American slavery was very, like the American uh, plantation system was very different from like other forms of slavery that had existed. Like they're all horrible and wrong, but I mean like how it functioned. Right. Whereas it functioned as like a, like a separate institution almost. That you could like, there was a class, like there were a class of citizens that were equal. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, we should just have all citizens be equal. Whereas if your society is just a straight hierarchy. Mm, That's a good point. Like you're not, you're not going for like one, oh, I'm going to move up to the equal class. There are only like a forever ascending level of classes. Right. Well, especially here where there are, I mean, you know, there's, there's at least two different types of, you know, there's, there's chattel slaves and there's uh, debt slaves in Sumerian society. And then mm-hmm. probably the vast majority of people are not enslaved, but not fully free either. 
you know, it, it looks a lot like a feudal duty to do, uh, you know, to do amount of farm work and to pay a surplus to someone else. Yeah, there are there are varying degrees of unfreedom. Right, right, right. So we have some proverbs about patriarchal family roles. You tell your son to come to your home. You tell your daughter to go to her women's quarters. The elder brother is indeed like a father. The elder sister is indeed like a mother. Listen, therefore, to your elder brother, and you should be obedient to your elder sister as if she were your mother. That's fairly standard. I feel like you see that in a lot of societies that value, like, family hierarchy. Yeah, and I've seen that written. Uh, there's a book that I have been meaning to take better notes on called In the Wake of the Goddesses. Well, the, the book is primarily about the female goddesses over time and the idea that, you know, female goddesses are replaced by male gods, which corresponds to fewer women in public life. Because in the 2000s, huh. we see we have a whole lot of women named in, you know, administrative texts, just doing regular stuff, having jobs and so on. And that percentage of women in the text decreases a lot by the second millennium BC, the 1000s. So Sumerian literature might give us a way to look at what life was like before that change. So I think it's interesting here mm -hmm. that presumably wealthy men are being given the instruction, listen to your elder sister as if she were your mother. It almost could be kind of a remnant of an earlier, not pre-patriarchal per se, but just a different kind of patriarchy where age plays more role than gender. Yeah, like it, imp it implies that your mother has household authority. Right. Not necessarily on par with your father, but telling the elder son to listen to his mother is saying she outranks you. Right, right, right. Which, you know, I just think it's interesting in the light of, you know, some later codes that are just like, you know, the oldest man in the family is the man of the house, no matter what generation. Right. So, yeah. A loving heart maintains a family. A hateful heart destroys a family. A woman with her own property ruins the house. You should not abuse a you. Otherwise, you will give birth to a daughter. You should not throw a lump of earth into the money chest. Otherwise, you will give birth to a son. A lot about that one is very interesting to me, but yep. I do I do love the a woman with her own property ruins the house. That's very interesting to me because like yep. the dominant religion in, in that part of the world now is Islam, and Islam like very clearly like sets out rules for like women own women can and should own property that is just their own. Mm -hmm. So I think it's I don't know I just think it's interesting that this is directly saying the opposite. Right. I mean, you know, probably the most obvious reading is just like, you know, I won't have power over this woman if she has her own property and is therefore not dependent on me. Right. And I think it's interesting also to say, like, maybe it's just how it's translated, but you should not even use a you. Otherwise, you will give birth to a daughter. This reads like it's speaking directly to, like, a woman. Hmm. That makes sense. Because it doesn't say it doesn't say your wife will give birth to it. It says you Ooh, will yeah, give birth yeah. to a daughter. Huh. And it also, like, it doesn't word it differently. It, it doesn't word it differently between, like, you'll give birth to a daughter or you will give birth to a son. It doesn't say you should throw a lump of earth into the money chest so you get a son. It says don't do this, otherwise you'll get a son. Yeah, that's interesting. That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me because usually those, like, in cultures with a patriarchy, you know, the ideal is you give birth to sons. Right. That's a good point. I mean, as far as the, 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 the you versus your wife thing, like, a lot of these proverbs would have just been scribes writing down proverbs that were, like, common orally. Okay. So not, you know, not all of these are necessarily exclusive to scribes writing stuff down, but you're right. You know, I, I don't have an explanation for, you know, why it would be phrased as having a son is the thing you want to avoid. So mm. You should not speak arrogantly to your mother. That causes hatred for you. You should not question the words of your mother and your personal God. The mother, like Utu, gives birth to the man. The father, like a God, makes him bright. The father is like a God. His words are reliable. The instructions of the father should be complied with. That that one, again, like puts the mother on par with like, not necessarily with the father, but like close. Right. Like in the same sentence as your personal God. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the, the only thing that, that I'm noticing now is it says, you know, the mother like Utu gives birth to the man. 
I don't know of any myths about Utu giving birth. And then it says the father, like, huh. like a God makes him bright. Like, you know, Utu is the sun God. I don't know if the second, like a God is also referring implicitly to Utu or what's going on there. We also have some practical advice with no particular ethical character. You should not locate a field on a road. You should not plow a field at a road or a path. You should not make a well in your field. People will cause damage on it for you. To get lost is bad for a dog, but terrible for a man. My son, a field situated at the bottom of the embankments, be it wet or dry, is nevertheless a source of income. The only insight I have here is that to get lost is bad for a dog, but terrible for a man also showed up in the uh, Lugalbanda and the mountain cave uh, episode. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that was like, I really, I liked that line. That was, that was interesting to me in this one. Yeah. And then there's you know, some, some insight about how water flows downwards and uh, that creates good farmland. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether or not it's good farmland or bad farmland, it's farmland. So. And I don't know, just, you know, just like the, the earlier one about feeding, you know, <laughs> counting individual loaves uh, that you give to your workers. You know, it's interesting that even as, you know, this society is creating new kinds of elite status and new kinds of big, powerful institutions that have, you know, ever more control over ever more land, practical advice, even to rich people that presumably have lots of farmers and servants and so on working for them, that kind of practical advice is still at the level of which soil is good, where to dig your well, where to, you know, put your field and so on. They're still intimately involved with the agricultural process, even if they aren't the ones holding the hoe. Yeah, yeah. We have some political insights. The palace is like a mighty river. Its middle is goring bulls. What flows in is never enough to fill it, and what flows out can never be stopped. The strong one can escape from anyone's hand. You should not beat a farmer's son. He has constructed your embankments and ditches. The wet nurses in the women's quarters determine the fate of their lord. That last bit is another thing that you see a lot, I feel like, in other cultures and in early nationalist rhetoric, too. You see a lot of, like, the women of the nation create the next mm. generation. Yeah. I don't know what that has to do any, with anything, but that's what I thought of. Yeah. I don't know. I just like this idea of uh, don't beat a farmer's son because he's the one who, you know, created your field and makes his irrigation possible. But it's, it's, you know, good to be a little bit self-aware at least. Like you said, they're still, they're still involved with this. So at this level, you've pissed these people off. It's not like there's high, like bureaucracy you're going through. You piss these people off and that's just that guy directly could just walk away. Right. And we have a couple of robbers that touched on philosophy. Fate is a wet bank. It can make one slip. It is inconceivable that something is lost forever. Who works with leather will eventually work with his own leather. I like that last one. That last one's spooky. <laughs> right. I was going to say, does that just mean like, like the is that like a circle of life thing? Or is that like, if you work with leather, your hands are going to be really beat up? Oh, no. I think, I, at least the way I interpreted it is like, if the way you live your life necessarily involves other people being harmed and you work with the products of that harm, you know, that's eventually going to come back to bite you in the ass. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 